Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in from, we don't have a name. But it's on Gmail migration. He says, Noah, might be a bit late here, but I'm catching up on my missed podcasts. On episode 239, Lucas wanted some help leaving Gmail. I'd recommend IMAP Sync. I've used it to sync all of my emails from Gmail initially and now every 15 minutes on a System D timer as I slowly migrate off of Gmail. All of my email winds up in the new email address, even if it was sent to Gmail, and then gets removed from my Gmail inbox. There are many ways to set it up. But it also deals with many of the particulars of Gmail. So if anyone wants particular help, please feel free to share my email. Um, And so what we'll do is we'll put his email in the show notes. And so if you are one of the people that are moving off of Gmail, um, then this would be he might be a resource for you. Our second email also on Gmail comes in from Freddie. Freddie writes in and says, hey, Noah, I meant to email last week, but listening To your episode today, someone brought up MBox Viewer in response to another listener's question. I believe that you can actually import MBox files into Thunderbird and then export again in any format you need. Thanks for the show. Keep up the great work. And so definitely appreciate that. I I was definitely not aware that you could uh, import into into Thunderbird, excuse me, into Thunderbird. Our third email is in response to the NFS FreeNAS issue. Good night to Ask Noah Show and the community. To the person that had issues with updating FreeNAS box with NFS shares in episode 240, it turns out NFS shares are broke with kernel 5.13 and a patch has been deployed but may not be integrated with some Ubuntu distros. Newer and latest is not always the best. Maybe go back and saying if it's not broke, don't fix it. Does the NAS solution offer a snapshot solution to roll back if the latest kernel updates break something? I've also been hearing good things about OMV NAS solutions recently from Open Media Vault. Thanks, Charlie Brown AU. So a huge thanks to Charlie Brown for writing into the program. Um, and so obviously we appreciate that. And yes, uh, I, I was not aware of the uh, NFS breaking on kernel 5.13, but I appreciate your writing in. And so, yeah, if you can roll back, I would push a little, I'd push back a little bit on the idea that if something isn't break broken, don't fix it. Obviously, nobody sits down and especially a software developer and says, well, I don't have anything better to do. So I think what I'm going to do is go find some things that nobody cares about. And then I'll see if I can push some changes to it. That, that sounds like a good idea to me, right? I I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening. I think for the most part, uh, they are fixing problems. They're just fixing other problems in the process of fixing other problems. Sometimes things inadvertently break. And so the answer I would argue is to update more frequently, not less. Gary writes in with a similar suggestion for the NFS issue. He says, hi, no, I wanted to write in and give you a solution that's that in case others run into this problem. It turns out to be a file locking failure. NFS 3 apparently does not support file locking out of the box. My options were 
on the client to mount and add to FSTAB locking options or to switch to NFS version 4, which does file locking without client options. I took the lazy slash efficient route of the TrueNAS core and changed NFS to version 4, restarted the service, and everything works. Yay! Have a nice day. Gary. Corey follows up with it to the open media vault suggestion that we made a few weeks ago. He writes in and says, hi, Noah. A while back, I emailed you about getting some sort of NAS on a Raspberry Pi with LVM. You recommended open media vault. I finally got off my butt and set up a Pi with open media vault. And I got to say, it's flawless. It's stable. I'm thinking that LVM doesn't really work well with the Raspberry Pi as I'm not able to get the LVM drop down menu to recognize my two Western digital hard drives. But really, it's not a deal breaker for a stable, low-powered server. Thanks so much for your recommendation. It works great. Corey Wills. Our pick of the week this week is Desk Green. It turned any device into a secondary screen for your computer. Now, this runs on Linux, Mac OS, and Windows, and it allows you to use any device with a web browser as a second screen for your computer with the help of the virtual display adapter. So this allows you to share your computer, the entire screen to a device that has a web browser. You can also limit desk screen to just share a single application to view on any device with the web browser. They also support connecting as many devices as you want at the same time. And you can share your screen to all of them if you like. So this is an easy way. If you're one of those people, particularly during the, uh, during the pandemic, if you're now working from home and you're used to working on a multi-monitor setup and maybe you don't have the funds to purchase that Thunderbolt dock or those, uh, those, 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 the, um, multiple screens. Uh, this is a great way to, to handle that. And apologies I, in the chat room. Somebody's asking if we're repeating picks. I apologize if that that's come up before. Um, I apologize for that, but it is, it's a fantastic piece of software. I got to, uh, to using it over the past few weeks and, and really excited about it. The, our gadget of the week is the pocket ethernet tester. You can learn more at pocketethernet.com. So when I first got into networking, one of the things that uh, one of the devices that I got hands-on with early on was a Fluke network tester, and it provided a number of advantages. One is you could just test cables, but the other thing it allowed you to do is connect to a cable and determine how long the cable was or if there was a break, where that break was. It also allowed you to do a number of dis- different testing of those cables and of the network in and of itself. And when I started Speed Technologies, one of the things I did is I set out and said, hey, I'm going to go and try to find uh, this device or something like it. And I looked at the fluke meter and almost fell off my chair when I saw the price. And so then I started looking at other competitors, but at the end of the day, it became very difficult to justify spending almost as much as what the fluke had, or you spend significantly less, but you just don't get any other features. Well, pocket ethernet changes all of this. It's a small little device that pairs to your smartphone via Bluetooth and works as an ethernet network analyzer and cable tester that fits into your pocket. Now it has the feature of doing cable toning with customizable tones. So you have the ability to trace out cables. You have the ability to do wire maps, POE, TDR, TDR graphs. You can check link state, CDP or LLDP. So this allows you to check out what your neighbors are, what's next down the pipe. It supports uh, viewing the outgoing VLAN tag. You can see DHCP, you can ping, you can do traffic and you can do BER. So all of these are included inside of the device. It's a $200 device, again, pairs to your smartphone. So one of the nice things there is and I was having this discussion in the pre-show before the show is if you if if this company had d- designed this device and built a built-in Android tablet or Android device into it, yeah, that would be kind of nice. But at the same time, then you're relying on that device manufacturer to push updates to the system. In this way, you compare it with your current smartphone or you can purchase a dedicated unit to use 
with it. So uh, an absolutely fantastic little device. Again, you can learn more at pocketethernet.com. In the news this week, the Linux Foundation is launching the 3D Foundation to get into uh, 3D game development. So with the new open source version of Amazon's, what they're calling uh, Lumberyard Game Engine, the Open 3D Foundation hopes to be a resource for game developers. And um, this is this is really targeting game developers that are concerned with the commercial license constraints. Uh I, I will bring in our interactive matrix room. If you'd like to join the conversation, there's a number of ways for you to do that, 855-450-NOAA, or join us in our interactive matrix or matrix room by going to uh, geeklab.ninja, and uh, we'll have the Jitsi opened up as well. So uh, I'll have that turned on. You guys are welcome to jump in as, as, as you like. So the Linux Foundation has announced this project for 3D game developers, and it's primarily designed around people that are worried about a commercial license constraint. And so it's called the Open 3D Foundation, and the project is launching with a new 3D engine called O3DE. Now, it's the new version of Amazon's Lumberyard Game Engine and is contributed by Amazon Web Services. Uh, so with more than 20 founding partners, and these partners include things like Adobe, Huawei, uh, Niantic, the aim is to create an open 3D engine that enables developers and content creators to build 3D experiences unencumbered by commercial terms. Now, I'll be honest with you. There are a number of times, both on this show and, and outside of it, that I've been concerned about the Linux Foundation. There, Oftentimes, their size can be concerning and frustrating to me. And the way they handle things can be concerning and frustrating to me. The way they market things are concerning and frustrating to me. But here's the reality that that is true is... If you, if your goal is to see the world move towards a more friendly, free and open source platforms, then you have to be willing to get the movers and shakers on board and to buy into that vision. And companies like Adobe and Huawei, if I started a, 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 a an initiative to move to 3D game engines, right? Nobody cares. But when the Linux Foundation comes out and says, hey, we are in charge of maintaining the Linux kernel. Maybe you've heard of that. And this is our new initiative. Would you like to sign on as a partner? Here's what, here's what we need from you. Here's what we're asking. Here's what we'd like to connect you to. Here's our vision. They know how to present that kind of information in a way that large companies are going to respond to, that large companies are going to give them the time of day. And they're capable of speaking that language. Quote, the new Open uh, Open 3D Foundation finally gives gaming engines and developers an opportunity to influence the direction of major AAA class 3D engine that is sustained for the long term by a worldwide open source community, said Chris Anazix, I think CTO of the Linux Foundation. And so w what that means to me or what I take away from this is that the Linux Foundation is putting their stamp of approval on this and saying, here's what we think the future of open source 3D development looks like. Do you agree that that shouldn't be in the hands of any one particular company and that it benefits us all if innovation rises and we can all participate? And so Amazon looks at that for a hot minute and says, well, yeah, if they're going to host all their data on Amazon Web Services, and they probably will, yeah, we would support that. 
And hey, we have this game engine and yeah, we would support that. And Huawei says, well, we make these devices. So yeah, we would support that. And all of a sudden, everybody starts to learn and starts to envision how they get their slice of the pie by buying into this larger ecosystem. And that large ecosystem isn't controlled by any one company. It's just governed by a group of companies, all with a shared interest in a advancement of a particular technology. So now the focus is on moving the needle forward on the piece of technology rather than the individual business interests of any one company. Quote, we believe an open source option will revolutionize real-time 3D development as Linux did for the operating systems and Apache did for the web, said AWS VP of Engineering Bill Vass. So they, they get it, right? They look at it and say, this model works. And this model has been proven in other areas. And so if we can make a game engine that is as successful for game engines as it was, as, as Linux was for the operating system server world, well, that's a, that's an ecosystem that we would like to participate in. But where I think this is going to spring far ahead of any proprietary alternative, right? If you're a game developer and you're developing a game engine specifically, then you sit down, you're concentrated on gamers and you're concentrated on gaming culture and the technology around gamers and you're working on, um, on, on integration with other games and those kinds of things. It's, you start to get the blinder effect where you're not looking at the other potential uh, opportunities for that same technology, another way to implement that same technology. And open source fundamentally isn't really constrained by that because there's always somebody out there going, well, I could use this tool in a different way. And so that's exactly what's happening here. It's not just for gamers. Industries, including healthcare, automotive, and others who are looking for 3D simulations are also going to benefit uh, from this model. And so if you're interested in testing out the Open3D engine, uh, you can find the developer preview on GitHub today. It's at github.com slash O3DE slash O3DE. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. CBL Mariner, that's the name of Microsoft's Linux distribution. CBL Mariner is a package-based RPM distro. It's kind of the open secret that is now a public secret. Uh, the package update uses both DNF and TDNF, TinyDNF, a package manager based on DNF coming from VMware's Photon OS. And so CBL Mariner uh, supports image-based updates and a mechanism for atomic servicing as well as rollback of RPM OS tree. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, RPM OS tree is an open source tool based off of OS tree to manage bootable, um, essentially immutable file system trees. But the idea behind this is to use a client server architecture to keep Linux hosts up to date and sync with the latest packages in a reliable manner. And so Microsoft has been in love with Linux for a long time. Um, they're obviously moving towards a direction to get more of their platforms and services running on it. I don't know that they're necessarily so much interested in your experience as a Linux user, but they're certainly interested in leveraging Linux for their benefit. And so CBL Mariner seems to be the next step in that direction. It follows a secure by default principle. And so most aspects of the OS have been built with an emphasis on security. It comes with a hardened kernel, signed updates, uh, an ASLR compiler-based hardening and tamper-resistant logs, among many feature sets. And uh, so this is Microsoft's own Linux distro. And so uh, time will tell all what they do with it, but I, I don't think it comes as a big surprise to anybody that as more and more of Microsoft's uh, infrastructure it runs on Linux, and as they continue to invest in open source, and frankly, as they continue to bring people on staff, right? Because it tends to change the direction of a company when you go out and say, okay, well, we're going to go hire people to work on Linux. And so now you have all these people that work on Linux. 
Microsoft becomes one of the largest contributors, has one of the largest uh, repositories up. At that point, it you know it becomes pretty uh, pretty straightforward for them to say, well, we better have some control over this or be able to provide some direction to this. And so I had speculated perhaps maybe Ubuntu goes public and maybe Microsoft makes a play there, but this seems like another way to get there, right? And so effectively what Microsoft is focusing on is making a stable uh, version of Linux and something that they can count on, something that they can kind of set the direction and and kind of move uh, move forward with. So continue to, to keep an eye on that. An update to the Audacity scandal that came out last week. So quick recap, Audacity was bought out a few months ago uh, or taken over by the Muse Group and it's a small little development group, seven or eight people that are there and uh, consequently made some decisions on updating their privacy policy that was met with extreme backlash from the community to include myself. Well, they responded officially uh, three days later and updated the original uh, pull request. And so the update states that uh, telemetry is strictly optional and disabled by default. And that telemetry only works on builds made by GitHub CI from their official repositories and that anyone compiling Audacity from source is going to be given a CMake option to enable telemetry, but the code option will therefore uh, be off by default. And so three days later to the update, there is uh, still a provisional telemetry policy was removed and the only reasonable sticking point was whether users' data might be collected without their specific approval. Um, and not only is the data collection opt-in, but the functions used to collect the data in the first place are extremely easy to remove. They're designed to be easy to remove, and they are, in fact, automatically remove anybody building the code from source themselves, which obviously uh, any Linux distribution repository would. And so um, the entire pull request has been revoked and replaced with a new uh, pull request, which is number 889, which is intended to clarify all the telemetry-related issues. The new PR states that we have absolutely no interest in harvesting or selling personal data and audacity will always be free and open source, end quote. And so this document goes on to note that the response to the original pull request uh, brought the realization at Muse that the convenience of using Yandex and Google is at odds with the public perception of trustworthiness. And so they'll be self-hosting instead and that they believe that a user community got it right. Muse apparently uh, is taking the community privacy concerns seriously and that they're going to change their policies. And and so it's, it seems to be like they're taking a reasonable approach. Now, <laughs> it's good that they are doing that because a the, the number of community efforts that have gone on to try to fix this uh, are are quite terrible, actually. So there is a group of people. Um, you're, there, there's a group of people that create that created a poll to pick the name of the new uh, of the new fork. And that then uh, kind of turned into a to a real mess um, that essentially there was a 4chan post where they started voting massively for the name Snidacity and Sneed being a Simpsons joke and a popular meme. Devs then removed the poll and created a new one. So they make their own fork called Snidacity. They then uploaded that to the AUR, but it, but it was deleted because somebody convinced the people responsible for it that Sneed really means something to the effect of special needs. Uh, and so then they started planning on ways to troll the main dev. And so 
the maintainer created a post on the GitHub effectively stepping down and saying, 4chan has successfully bullied me out in order to have uh, their fork synodacity, a fork that was finally created with blood quite literally. And he said, the post goes on to say a lot more, but essentially he arrives at, I give up. I don't care. The safety of my family is worth more than the open source project. They found out my address via a YouTube video where someone was posting my nickname combined with my real legal name, which meanwhile got taken down due to me asking. So the thing that I think is really disappointing here is if when I said last week, and I stand by this, one of the things that I think is great about open source is that the license and the way that we operate prevents to a large degree people from being able to, our company being able to take too much latitude. But where we wound up was in, in an effort to try to fix that, it turned into, in, uh, to a, to a total disaster. Uh, and, and when you start getting into threatening people, um, I, there just doesn't seem to be much of an excuse. And so, I it's, it's disappointing to me that we had a problem in the open source community, one that should have been fairly easily solved. Hey, we just take this and we just fork it. We just make two copies. That should have been real easy. And instead of doing that, uh, and and maybe maybe you had two forks, maybe you had two different groups that had a different way of looking uh, at it, and and wanted to and wanted to try uh, uh, some different approaches. They we couldn't do that without getting to the point that you're physically harassing people and so shame on the people and it's not the, i'm sure it's not the entire project and this this came up inside of the the github issue request and you know the the maintainer of tenacity said hey i'm really upset with these guys at Snedacity, and i think that you know we they should really not be allowed to continue uh with some of the online hate that they're spewing and the reality was it probably wasn't everybody at that project and so i certainly don't want to paint with too broad of a brush um, I'm sure there, there I'm, I'm sure that there were a lot of people on from both projects um, that meant well, but it's really sad that we that we got to this state of affairs. Ansible is considering a switch to Matrix. And, you know, th this is one of the best write ups of a group switching from IRC over to Matrix that I think I've read in a long time. So this is from Greg Sutcliffe and um he opens, he has a fantastic read. I, I, I'll, we'll have a link for the, in the show notes at podcast.asknoshow.com. I'd, I'd highly recommend you check it out. Um, but he opens with a quote from Thibault Martin over at Gnome. And, he, and, 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 and Thibault says, IRC used to be a top-notch system for a while, and it's still pretty reliable. There are issues here and there, but given how basic the whole protocol is, it's fairly sturdy. The frugality of the protocol that it, once, that it was once is its strength has now turned into its weakness in a modern world. People's expectations have shifted, and most of our contributing community is already working from for the computer when producing the great software we all enjoy. It's time for instant messaging to get out of the way and to allow the computer to work for us when it comes to talking to each other. No NixServe spells, no ChanServe incantations, no bouncer to rent or to host on a server. It's time for us to just enter our credentials, browse the channels, and enjoy the conversations with the one that we love to work with. And so he then goes on to explain that the available interfaces just haven't kept up with modern expectations. And so things like spam and harassment um, are huge problems 
in the IRC world. And so if users are in other channels, they're exposed to it. And IRC is frequently blocked with inside of certain businesses and certain colleges and institutions and certain corporate networks uh, because in large part of IRC spam. And even if it doesn't affect uh, even if it doesn't affect them because it's because they were able to effectively move, the Freenode drama has shown that there's an issue with organizational ownership. They lost all of their chat history because of the drama and largely outside of their control. They couldn't control the the the, the controlling factors inside of Freenode, and because of that, they lost their 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 chat backlog. And worse yet, and he goes on to explain later in the article, they lost their namespace because. All of the documentation and all of the social media promoting that they had done to say, here's where you can chat with us. Here's where you can connect with us. Well, now it's all out of date and it's all out of date outside of their control. So IRC is is just not what people expect out of a modern chat system, he says. Nick's serve is unintuitive to be polite uh, compared to modern signup systems that people encounter every day. And so access is hard and frequently blocked at the network level. Additionally, there is a rich interface that just isn't there with IRC, and you don't get persistence without a bouncer, which is even harder to get right than NixServe, he says. And I can relate to that, right? I remember uh, helping some people get connected to IRC for the first time, and they they would get in there and they'd say, well, this is really strange. Like, if I'm not logged in, then I don't get the messages? And yes, once we understand how it works and why it works, then we understand that, okay, well, you have to have, because you're maintaining your connection to the server, obviously that would be on you. Um, but that can be really off-putting to a new user. And so he says it's unnecessarily a huge barrier to entry. And, and so the platform that just doesn't meet the expectations of new users. And so it's, it's an enormous ask for people who aren't deeply embedded in the project, uh, to, to learn this infrastructure and then to, to, to set it up. And so he said, I find it surprising that I find it unsurprising that IRC growth in general has been outpaced by other platforms and we are no exception as a FOSS project. We need volunteers. And when we cut, we put big berries in the way we wither. Secondly, keeping members safe. He says that they have a code of conduct, but the way that IRC works, it just isn't as easy to apply and enforce. And it's difficult to ask people to agree to the code of conduct uh, the way they do in other places. And finally, and this is where I think uh, he he really nails the, the, the nail on the head, is ownership. Quote, the recent Freenode drama demonstrated that we didn't have control of our own chat domain and the world that we live in, say in a form or by email, and instead watched helplessly as a community was fractured by the actions of others. And so after he does what I think is a fantastic job of laying out where the limitations are of IRC, and by the way, I'll make it clear, Ansible is going to continue to support the community who wants to stay connected via IRC because obviously Matrix does that. Uh, after he does that, then he goes on to speak about the Matrix protocol. And, and, and so he starts by saying, hey, a lot of times, a lot of the uh, pushback against Matrix is not against Matrix the protocol, which is a protocol for real-time communication, and that payload can be text, it can be audio, it can be video, it can be file sharing. It's a client limitation. And so oftentimes they say, hey, I don't like it because it's sluggish, or this thing doesn't load right, or this, 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 um, you know, control is in the wrong place. Well, that's a client concern. And so he goes on to say, hey, I'm not saying that it's not a valid discussion. It's a completely valid discussion. It's just not in the scope of deciding what protocol to use. And so you should look at the client pages. And there are many options from a full web UI to a plugin for WeChat. Now, if you like IRC, 
stay on IRC. You can keep IRC. And so if you nothing changes for you because Matrix can be used as IRC. You're just ignoring some of the other features that come along with the Matrix ecosystem, features like image sharing, and there's even an IRC display style in Element. So thanks to he says, thanks to bridging, you can hop directly into IRC channels and even some IRC networks such as Libera and OFTC, to name two. You'll get persistence for free. There's no need to run a bouncer, and you can continue largely as normal, and this has been my workflow for the last four years. Uh, the ownership of namespace is one that I think is frequently overlooked, and he addresses this uh, very well. He, he talks about what a project's name means. And so when you get an email from an organization, if I send you an email and my email ends at at altaspeed.com, there is a supposition there that I represent AltaSpeed. I work at AltaSpeed. I'm associated that with that company in some way, or I wouldn't have been able to get an at altaspeed.com email address. And so what values do those people represent? And when you join a chat room, who, depending on who you're talking to, um, how do we preserve that namespace and domain sovereignty? And right now, that's very difficult to do on something like Freenode because you, if you're not careful, you lose it overnight. And so, as he points out, all of the rooms were empty. The namespaces were then meaningless. And the same risk is true in Libera, even though the entire reason Libera started was because of the drama on Freenode. At the end of the day, they they were able to. Uh, Libera could still make poor choices, right? And so it's still a third-party network. And that's, of course, true of Slack, Discord, etc. They're all controlled by those individual entities. In fact, the only email which really, or the only platform that really nails that on the head is email. And so there's a parallel to be drawn. And of course, he's drawing that parallel because Matrix themselves draws the parallel between the Matrix protocol and email. If you were unhappy with Thunderbird, that's not being unhappy with empty or being happy with IMAP. It's, it's being unhappy with the client. And so he says, I do have a Red Hat email address and only Red Hat can take that away from me. When I email from that, I'm doing Red Hat stuff and that matters. Matrix has the ability to do this too. In the same way that an email server uses an MX DNS record, Matrix has namespaces. And so our rooms can be devil colon ansible.com. If we wish them to be and a matrix room can have many aliases. So the primary room ad address confers power to manage the room. And so long as we hold the DNS record, we hold the room. And that's one of the benefits of federation. You own the data, you own the namespace, you own the chat. He goes on to say it goes deeper though, but because we'll have accounts to give out a second DNS name, why a second domain? Well, because there are some extensive thoughts on matrix sovereignty, but one point is made about the impression and the representation. These accounts will be available to the wider Ansible community. And I don't want to give these accounts to be associated with Red Hat. Those are for, uh, they are for community and ownership of Ansible.im. MXID should have the same gravitas as a project email address. And so this is something I've not seen before. Uh, but I think it, it, it's, it's, it's relevant here. And that is having two matrix servers for the same organization, one for the professional side, for the, for the people that actively work for the organization, and then the other community side. Now I've split that off. Obviously I have two MXIDs. I have one for AltaSpeed and then one for Linux Delta, but I've split those off into two entirely different spaces. It never really occurred to me, but I like the idea of, Hey, 
Ansible has two sides to it. People that actually work on the Ansible project and are paid for it and are, are, are in leadership or positions of authority in that project. And then everybody else who is valuable and we want them to be involved in the discussion, but they don't represent the project. And so setting up two servers allows them to do that. Now, the other thing that he brings up, and this is one of the features I have not heard talked about a lot, but I think it's really fantastic, and that is the federated auto-updating blacklist sharing. And so the idea here is if you decide that you trust somebody else's decision, okay, at some other organization. So let's say you say, hey, I really trust those guys over at Linux Delta. They do a great job at moderating. And so uh, we share the same values. If they weren't welcome in their community, whatever the kind of conversation or whatever kind of thing that the activity that they were engaging in over there, if it wasn't acceptable over there, it certainly wouldn't be acceptable over here. Those decisions can be immediately and automatically reflected in your own server. So when a, when a organization that you trust drops the ban hammer on a bad actor, then that ban can be adopted almost immediately at on your server and your community as well. And you don't have to ha ever have seen that person. You don't have to wait for them to connect. You don't have to see the content that they posted that that was objectionable. You don't even have to know that that person exists. All you have to do is decide that I trust the judgment of that organization over there. And magically, that person uh, is banned everywhere. And I... Th I th are there some concerns there? Is there the possibility of, of censorship and those kinds of things? Yes, absolutely. But in large part, this is a fantastic tool to combat spam and to combat abuse. So they're, they're going forward. They're gaining funding from Red Hat for a home server, I, I believe for two home servers, and they're going to be hosting it uh, through EMS. And part of the reason that they went this route and part of what they were doing was they decided to uh, look at the direction that Mozilla went. And so Mozilla came out and said, hey, we worked with EMS. We worked with these guys. They did a really fantastic job and they were fantastic partners. And so... We were really happy with the end result. And so Ansible came out and said, okay, well, we're going to follow suit. That's what we're going to do as well. And so they did. Um, and so now they're going to spin up those two servers. And as a company who has a hosted instance for, of Matrix from EMS, I have to agree. They're fantastic. The support is fantastic. They're extraordinarily receptive to feedback. Um, when there are issues, they're addressed immediately. Um, there aren't issues that are to be unexpected. It's mostly about, hey, I want to move the needle forward and I, w I would like these features. I would like to make these changes, those kinds of things. Um, super, super flexible, very, very fantastic partner. So congratulations to Ansible for moving over. They have a welcome room um, that uh, that you can join. We'll have a link to this this read. It's kind of a long read, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. And I think if you're one of those people that were kind of on the edge and saying, I don't know why Noah's talking about Element so much and why is he talking about Matrix so much and what's the big deal? This guy sums it up way better than I ever could. If you're looking for a communication platform and want to know why I think Matrix is the way to go, I would tell you uh, that that this article uh, by, by Greg Sut Sutcliffe uh, sums it up much better than I ever could. Firefox 90 is out, and while there aren't a huge amount of uh, changes here, uh, there are a couple. Exceptions to HTTPS only mode can be managed in about colon preferences under privacy. The ability to print to PDF now produces working hyperlinks. Version two of Firefox smart block feature improves private browsing. So when you have third party Facebook scripts that are blocked to prevent you from being tracked, but they're automatically loaded just in time in case you decide to use the login with Facebook feature on any site, the open image in new tab context menu now opens image images and media in a background tab by default. 
And uh, most users without hardware accelerated uh, web, web render will now be using software web render. They've also removed FTP support, which while I'm slightly disappointed because there's every once in a while, that turns out to be a saving grace. I can understand the, uh, the need and desire to get rid of uh, outdated technology. And so we'll have a link for you if you'd like to read the complete release notes at Mozilla.org. Those will be available to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Your feedback drives the show, and so every week when you send in feedback to live at AskNoahShow.com, we compile all of that and then turn uh, repeating emails into segments. We see there's a lot of interest in the community on a particular subject. We do that, and today we're going to talk about Gmail alternatives and moving off of G Suite. Before we do that, uh, Tony asked a question in our matrix room. Again, if you'd like to ask a question, you can just message our questions bot, which is questions colon linuxdelta.com. Tony asks, hi, what's the best way to bring an IP camera via RS, RTSP or something like that into a Zoom or Microsoft's team call? And so the, the fastest, quickest, dirtiest way I can think to do that is to use software like VLC. And so once you use VLC, you'll, you'll have a, You'll be able to just play that uh, that RTSP stream on your computer browser, and then you can either share that window. If you wanted to get fancier about it, you could bring it in as a HDMI source on a separate machine. Uh, if you wanted to get fancier yet, you could use something like OBS to generate the render and then output that as a source. Uh, Sleuth asked, or excuse me, JWest84 asked, you refer to software and hardware uh, episode to episode. What's your go-to software do you use daily for fun making Oh, huh, I see. Not a real question. All right. So message the question bot. Again, questions, colon, Linux, delta.com. Our first alternative to Gmail is Hushmail. Now, Hushmail has been around since 1999. It's not a fancy alternative to G Suite, but it does employ encryption and an encryption for the email um, and only supports plain text. So you can't do images, you can't do attachments, those kinds of things. But if you just need a basic alternative, something that has a long track history and has been around for a long time, then check out Hushmail. MessageSafe, msgsafe.io, employs 4096-bit GPG encryption, has the ability to do virtual identities and uh, virtual email addresses. And so if you wanted one for using for shopping and you wanted a separate one to use for personal contacts and a third one to use for work contacts, that, that's how you would employ virtual identities and, and virtual email addresses. And so I, in and I'm, not that I'm using MessageSafe, but in, in my personal email service, this is what I do. I create aliases for basically every separate thing. So my kid's school has one email address, work has another email address, shopping has another email address. It Depending on... Uh, what the situation is, I got called for jury duty. I was not going to give the uh, the courthouse my main email address. They don't need that kind of access to me, so they got a dedicated one. Um, and, and they have a free plan available. If you'd like to get started for free, that's another great option. GMX, it uses Open G, uh, OpenGPG encryption. It's based in the European Union, specifically Germany. They use ads for revenue, and so... One of the things that you want to be aware of with GMX is that you're going to get pop-ups and logins. You're going to be displayed ads, but the trade-off is that it's free and they allow you to send attachments up to 50 megabytes. Mailbox.org. And so this is one of the uh, providers that came out 
post Snowden after Snowden released his his dump and and of government overreach and why encryption and privacy is so important. Mailbox.org sprung up in Germany. The team behind Mailbox.org are very experienced developers with only with over 25 years of experience providing secure communications and solutions. Now, Mailbox.org itself was released in 2014, again, post-Snowden, and they aim to be a fully featured email suite. So a standard subscription includes a whole range of tools. They include calendars, they include contacts, groupware, a full list of PGP key management, secure cloud storage with all that counts. Additionally, they store emails on two servers in Germany in order to provide geo-redundancy. And so emails are secured on both of those servers using GPG, and cloud storage is also secured as a standard. Now they do store IP addresses. However, the, the they're very upfront about their privacy policy and the IPs are automatically deleted after four days. And so the idea here is if you ever wonder why are these companies storing IP addresses for a few days and then they delete them or anonymize them? Well, the purpose of that is security. So if somebody breaks into your account or is doing something malicious, they have some way of tracking down who this malicious user is, who this bad actor is and weeding them out. Um, but then after a few days, obviously, whatever happened four days ago, if there was a problem, the user presumably would have complained and they would have known about it. So at that point, they're doing more harm to the user's privacy by storing the data than by removing it. And you'll find that to be a consistent pattern uh, of, uh, of, of providers. Postio, P-O-S-T-E-O, is a very unique paid email service. Now, this is kind of cool. A lot of times when people are looking for alternatives to G Suite, they're primarily looking at alternatives to G Suite because of privacy. And so while Postio does address privacy concerns, they also address sustainability. So the argument here is if you are signing up for G Suite and G Suite is running in a data center and that data center is running maybe off of a coal-fired uh, power plant, then, you're, then the more email addresses you have and the more business you do with that company, the more servers they have to run, the more power they draw, and the more harm there is to the environment and the world. And so all of Postio's servers are powered by 100% green electricity from Greenpeace Energy. And uh, like I say, they do take a privacy approach here, so you can sign up without providing any personal information. You can even pay completely anonymously as well. They offer an ad-free experience, and it allows attachments up to 50 megabytes as compared to Gmail's 25 megabyte limit. Again, uh, you're going to see a pattern. Either you get the software for free, in which case you're going to receive ads. If you didn't receive ads and you got the software for free, then the question you should be asking is, how are they paying for it? Because if you're not selling me a product, then I must be the product. And that's something I want you to pay attention to as we, as we continue on here. Runbox is the next, uh, is the next alternative here. All of the power used, uh, to keep Runbox running comes from, again, 100% certified renewable hydroelectricity. So much like Postio, they're taking on both the privacy aspect and the climate change aspect. Runbox is based in Norway, which means that you are protected under the country's very strict privacy laws, and it offers strong encryption features along uh, the legal protections. Now, again, because it's a service that you're not the product, you're purchasing a product, well, plans start at 19.95, so it's 20 bucks a month. Zoho. This is what I would consider to be one of the best alternatives for a business. The other ones are great if you're just looking for privacy email or, again, if you're looking for green energy uh, style email. But when it comes to business suites, Zoho is one of the best places to start. In fact, a lot of times when businesses ask, hey, I'm just a startup or I'm a volunteer group or I'm whatever, 
what should I, what should I look at? I often suggest that they start with Zoho. Why? Well, because they offer a free plan for up to five users, which is enough to get any small startup going. Well, I shouldn't say any small startup, but most small startups they can get going for with five users. And that they get a full email address. They get a full office suite. They get 25 megabyte uh, attachment limit for those five users. And the, I guess, selling shtick of, of Zoho is their business apps. And so essentially they have little add-ons that you can, that you can use, little programs that you can use that help with business. In fact, I've seen some companies use Zoho. They have something else for their email and they use Zoho just for some of these apps. And so that includes things like Zoho CRM. Zoho Click and Zoho Expense. Zoho Expense being the one that I see oftentimes they may have a G Suite or an Office 365 subscription, but they still have Zoho Expense because it allows their employees to have a little mobile app, take a picture of the receipt, it uploads to uh, the Zoho uh, management interface, and then the accountants and, and bean counters can make sure that they have uh, accountability for all the purchases that were made. Zoho offers encryption. They support two-factor authentication, QAuth 2.0. They also produce what they call suspicious activity reports, which alerts you to any, as you might imagine, suspicious activity. They have all the appropriate security certificates, and they offer all of their data centers in discrete data centers. Now for my personal favorite business choice, and that is Fastmail. Again, Fastmail is one of those companies where you are the customer, you are not the product. And so again, if you're asking yourself, how is this free? The answer is you must be the thing that they're trying to sell or more realistically, your data is. So with Fastmail, your data belongs to you. And so the data on Fastmail servers is encrypted with Lux or directly on the server hardware for those servers that support the capability. Now, the real selling feature here for Fastmail, when I talk, when I sit down with businesses, is if you're on G Suite, you're looking at like twelve bucks a month. If you're on Office, it's a little bit more than that. It's like thirteen, fourteen a month, right? Fastmail starts at three dollars per user per month. Now they have two other plans. There's a five dollar per user per month plan, but the only thing that you don't get with the three dollar user one that you would get with the five dollar user plan is group calendaring and snooze functionality. So if you can live without those two, it's three bucks per month per user. They have a third plan, which is $9 per user per month, and the only thing that that adds on top of the $5 per user per month is retention archive. So the retention archive is kind of neat because what it allows you to do is let's say you have an organization and you're you're dealing with sensitive information, either financial information or healthcare information, and you need accountability so that when that customer comes back and says, hey, I sent an email to so-and-so and and I told them X, Y, Z – even if so-and-so deleted the email, you can go back into the tamper-proof archive and look and go through all of the emails that were received by that user and verify if indeed uh, that that situation occurred or not. And so uh, for, for businesses that need that functionality, again, even $9 per month, it's still less expensive than virtually any other office uh, email suite out there. And the management interface is absolutely fantastic. As an IT company, the amount of times that we go to manage email for someone and 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 need to either imitate that user to set up a device for them or, or provide remote support or uh or or help a manager go through the inbox to manage their organization fastmail allows you to do all of those things and so certainly wouldn't be the the first place i would go for personal email but if you're looking for a business email solution it is it is what we use at altaspeed technologies and i i could not be happier with them they support imap they support pop3 now i i will say 
I can't do a show on Linux and open source and privacy-centered technology without somehow, uh, without somehow addressing the downsides to fastmail. And there are some, right? So first of all, it's based in Australia. And that's of note because Australia is part of the Five Eyes Network, which is essentially an agreement between five different countries that say, hey, we are going to make sure that that any information that one of our countries uh, sees is available to the intelligence agencies of all other countries. And Australia in particular has has some interesting legislation, one of which is the Assistance and Access Bill. And uh, that a court ruled that your metadata is actually data about your device, not about you as a person. And so this essentially cleared the way for telecoms and other companies to record data and hand it over to the government at demand. And while at the same time, they can deny you access to that same data that they have because they suggest that that is that doesn't technically belong to you. And so as the name uh, suggests, the law requires technology companies to assist authorities in gaining access to user data. And so that can include direct access as well as adding back doors or removing access barriers also to include breaking encryption. And so this is something we have to pay attention to, right? Anytime we start talking about secure communications in any sense of the word, any sense of the of, of the concept, you have to start asking yourself, where is the private key for that data stored? Now, if it's stored on your device and you're in charge of it, then it's a-okay. If it's not in your control, then understand that whoever does control that is ultimately the person that is going to be able to decrypt your email. So it doesn't really matter to me that the server, that the data is encrypted at rest. First of all, if uh, somebody gets access to my email box or has access to, gets my account password, then they have access to the whole nine yards. And second of all, there's nothing stopping Fastmail from handing the encryption keys for their Lux encrypted servers over to somebody else to have them go through email. So this is, but again, you know, depending on what your business is, you may not need that kind of level of protection. My rationale is this. Almost every email I send, not every email, but almost every email I send is being sent to a customer that is on Office 365, G Suite, or some sort of personal email address. Almost none of them are on ProtonMail or Tutano, which we'll get to in a little bit. These email providers that provide end-to-end encryption, right? And so the idea of maintaining or really putting the, the screws on to make sure that all of our email is end-to-end encrypted doesn't seem to be a huge priority to me. Additionally, all of the internal company stuff that we do, if it's a private conversation or something that that contains sensitive user data, it's not going over email anyway. It's going over Element in a secure encrypted end-to-end encrypted chat in which we do control the encryption keys for. So I break it down to the, from the standpoint of Google has a vested interest in obtaining my data so that they can use me as the product. Fastmail just charges me for that, and they do a fantastic job. And again, the administrative controls for archiving and stuff is absolutely fantastic. They also support something called Topic uh, Box, which is essentially team sharing. And so it's a sister product of Fastmail, but it's group email for teams. And so it gives you a shared archive where the administrator can create controlled access groups to manage messages and knowledge of your teams instead of forwarding and CC messaging all over the place. You can just send them to the relevant group on Topic Box, and then it streamlines the communication, keeps all the information organized. 
Mailfence is next up. It's based in Belgium, and this is where you get some extra protection from the country's strict privacy laws. Emails, again, are secured using open GPG and end-to-end encryption. The client is browser-based, and so it runs on most devices. They offer both free and paid plans. The free plan includes up to 500 megabytes of email storage, 500 megabytes of document storage. Their top-tier ultra plan includes 50 gigabytes of email storage and up to 70 gigabytes of document storage that costs 25 euros a month. The lowest paid plan is 250 euros a month and offers five gigabytes of email storage, 12 gigabytes of document storage. Colab now another one. This I would I would probably put this in the top tier of of business email. Now we tried it at AltaSpeed, it didn't work out for us personally, but I think it's a fantastic product. You can learn more at colab. Uh, Colab with a K. They're based in Switzerland and they are a full collaboration suite. So they provide secure and private email. They provide uh, secure and private calendars. They're 100% free and open source and they have an open standards and formats used for all of their storage and communication. So there is no vendor lock. And again, you can learn more at collabnow.com. Startmail was founded by a Dutch private search engine called Startpage. Perhaps you've heard of them. Now, they have a track record of privacy as their ultimate goal. And so, again, anything that comes from Start uh, Startpage is something that I'm, I'm interested in. And so now they have Startmail. So they only gather the data that they need to provide their services. And this, of course, includes your IP address, your device model, your country, and clicked links. The collected data, again, like others, is stored only for the length of time in your browsing session and only your IP address is kept for security reasons. But at that point it's encrypted, it's anonymized. And then still like other providers, it's deleted after three days. They don't use uh, tracking cookies. In fact, it's strictly prohibited. They offer PGP encryption. Your emails are stored at their, on their local Dutch servers. They encrypt your information server side rather than in the browser. Now they claim that doing that is safer than encryption in the browser. And you can read on, on their site as to why they think so. I disagree implicitly. Uh, but they do offer you to pay for your subscription in cryptocurrency or by card. And so if you choose the latter, then your payment uh, is assigned a unique number, and then it can be separated from your account details. Probably the two best private email providers out there because they are actually private, whereas all of these other ones have um, little catches to them. Uh, Tutanoa, based in Germany, they have a free plan. They also have three paid plans. They have annual plans receiving a, uh, a 15% discount. Nonprofit organizations can get 50 or even 100% discount on paid plans depending on on, on where you live. They offer end-to-end encrypted emails. They offer secure calendaring that uses end-to-end encryption. So this is kind of neat because nobody can see your appointments or reminders. Instead of receiving email, uh, if a person is not a Tutanoa user, then they get a te- then they receive just a plain email text with a link that they can open the message securely on Tutanoa's server. And so then each confidential email is then protected by a password. Their free plan is only one user and it's limited, has limited search functionality, but you can have uh, one calendar and comes with one gigabyte of storage. Their premium account is $15 a year. They support custom domains and limited search, inbox rules, multiple calendars, and up to five aliases. And then you can uh, add on things like storage. For, uh, so, for example, one terabyte of storage is 60 euros a month or $70 a month, or adding secure content form to your site is $28 a month. And finally, the granddaddy of private email, what I personally use for my personal email and, and recommend with absolutely no equivocations, ProtonMail. You can learn more at protonmail.com. Open source, independently audited, 
end-to-end encrypted emails with other users of the service. They don't have logging. They support two-factor authentication. They have zero access to user data. Why? Because you control and manage your private key, and you can rotate that private key when you think you want to. You don't have to enter any personal information to sign up for account. It can be completely anonymous. Uh, you can have password protection on messages. So like Tutanova, if you have somebody that's not a ProtonMail user, they can still receive an email from you and it can still be encrypted. They just have to go click on that link to see the message. It also supports message expiration, secure file and calendar transfer. It supports uh, plans that start for free. They also have uh, Proton VPN. They have a bridge for local mail client, which is great if you want to use it with Thunderbird. Uh, their monthly plan is $5 a month. Their plus plan is $48. Annually, visionary is $30 a month. Uh, professional is 8 bucks a month. And uh, professional annually is $75 a month. Music in my ears means we're out of time. All of the links and references I made, they're all available to you in the show notes. Podcast.asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next t- Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Have a good week.